missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and I'm all alone again because we got a special conversation. I got to talk with Professor Lee Berger, because guess what? He's got a new documentary out on Netflix, and he's got a new book coming out soon, and it's called The Cave of Bones. That's right. We're heading back into the Dina Letty chamber. So I'm just going to stop talking right now, and you can listen to my conversation with Professor Lee Berger coming up right now. We are welcoming back one of our favorite guests, one of my favorite people, to talk about his new Netflix documentary, Unknown Cave of Bones. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast, Professor Lee Berger. Lee, thank you so much for coming on again. It is absolutely great to be here. I've dragged myself out of the field uh, temporarily. We're underground in Dragon's Back Chamber, um, making great discoveries. Yeah. I've also been at the 105 site making more hominid discoveries there. So this is a, a, a restart. Now we're going to be in the field effectively permanently 300 days a year. So lots of exciting stuff happening. You know, when you make exciting finds, you tend to be in the field a long time after that, right? Well, you know, I think that it's actually just the opposite. When you're oh. in the field a long time, you make exciting finds. You know, that's probably more accurate, right? You got to be there to to do the to do the work and find the things. Um cuz you know, you've been in the in and around the Dinaletti chamber for quite some time at this point, right? Well, it's coming on uh, this is it will be the 10th anniversary of that discovery in uh September of this year and in November will be the 10th anniversary of the first expedition. So which seems impossible to me I, I i will tell you that but that that's what it is yeah and just as a a quick refresher if you're listening to the podcast for the first time you've never heard of homo naledi you've never heard of the rising star cave system you've never heard of the dinaledi chamber boy are you going to be excited at the end of this episode but as a quick primer we're talking about the area where the discovery of Homo naledi, one of our one of our hominid ancestors was was found, and can you give us just like the the Sparknotes version of why Homo naledi is so interesting? Absolutely. So, Homo naledi is a small brained hominid. It, it looks in kind of the typical way people would think of an early member of the genus Homo would look. Kind of what's in your mind about Homo habilis if you have a mental image of that, a small brain, about a third the size of ours, a little bit larger than the chimpanzees, um, uh, with a but other aspects that are primitive, a prognathic face, a flat, a flattened face, almost no nose, teeth that are small but primitive in shape. The shoulders are ape-like, uh, but as you move distally towards the hands and then uh, from the pelvis down towards the feet, they become more and more human-like. They're actually mm -hmm. fairly tall. Um, they measure about four foot eight to five and a half foot tall. 
but they have very tiny brains on top of that, which makes them very low encephalization, which is a word we use. They, they, but they have a very low EQ or encephalization quotient, our brain to body size. Mm-hmm. Um, that wouldn't be remarkable if they were two or two and a half million years old. We just put them as another primitive species, but they're not. Um, the population or the group that we're looking at lived in uh, and used this rising star chamber between about 240,000 and 330,000 years on the dates we've presently published, although those dates are going to widen on both directions uh, in the not distant future. And when we announced them, we very provocatively said that they were deliberately disposing of their dead because they were all in this deep chamber alone. They were the only thing there. And so that was a very sort of um, controversial hypothesis. And the reason it was, was that mortuary practices of any kind were considered the property of large-brained homo sapiens and maybe our close relatives like Neanderthals and some of the earliest Neanderthals like those from Atapuerca. Um, We sat with that as an almost untestable hypothesis until a few years ago when we began uncovering graves. We found holes in the ground with bodies curled up in them that were then covered by the dirt from those holes. Um, multiple, multiple occurrences of that. And last uh, last July, uh, I managed to lose 55 pounds and get into that chamber, the 47th person to ever get into that chamber. And while in there discovered both fire, evidence of fire in the chamber, evidence of utilization of the chamber, and most importantly, engravings on the wall above these burials. And in the absence of the evidence, any evidence of Homo sapiens, we've attributed those engravings to Homo naledi. And so we start this new adventure um, with that. You know, I am so happy that you brought a camera crew along with you to see this because we had you on this podcast before and you were kind of fine with the idea that I believe you said my ego wouldn't fit into that chamber, <laughs> let alone my body. And, and you know, you were it was something that you have kind of like come to peace with at that point. And knowing that that was kind of your attitude towards the actual Dina Letty chamber, which is, you know, uh, like a, like a, a 10 inch shoot that you're kind of Se- going seven and a half inches, seven and a half <laughs> inches. Small. Yeah. Let's, let's not, let's point. not oversell it. <laughs> 10 inches is probably the average width. <laughs> okay. But you're, you're having to, you know, kind of travel down and then eventually hopefully back up this, the shoot to get to the Dina Letty chamber. So I don't want to make it seem like we're just kind of walking. Like it is a major undertaking to get here. And I almost died. Able, in fact, yeah, getting out. Yeah. Amazing. Like seeing your face, when you entered that chamber Ugh. was incredible. And then watching you kind of like look at the walls as you're taking in and then realizing like, those are not natural markings that we're seeing. It that was, was an amazing extraordinary moment. Uh, it was an extraordinary moment. I mean, what's interesting is that the, the whole event where the Netflix clue crew was with me wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been planning to go in for about six to seven months. Um, We were in the process of doing the final submissions and getting these papers ready on burials. And there were these contradictions. Mm -hmm. And you've got to remember that this is an extraordinarily dangerous and difficult space. As I said, until that point, 46 people had been in. 
only three geologists have ever made it into this chamber. Mm -hmm. And so there were these contradictions and in, in, in stuff that most people would think of are tiny little small things, but I knew it would be major things. And I thought at that moment that making the argument that we had discovered the graves of a non-human species um, was going to be kind of the biggest thing ever. And I, I thought that these contradictions couldn't sit. And, you know, I have a degree in geology and it, uh, <laughs> as well as archaeology. And, and I decided to make this attempt because I was one of the few people, probably me and John Hawks, are the only two people, or John Hawks and I, are the only two people that hold kind of the whole story in our mind, all, all the different aspects. We kind of act as executive editor on, on pretty much everything. And so I began a weight loss program, <laughs> which after COVID, I think all of us needed that. Sure, sure. And and in July, I decided I. it's a kind of cool story because the Netflix crew was there. They'd been following us for almost a year at that point. And I, well, not about seven months at that time. And I uh, was showing Augustine Fuentes and John Hawks uh, the the shoot and I that's actually portrayed in 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 the show. You actually follow us up and we're looking down. I'm showing them. What it doesn't show is I let them leave mm -hmm. and I let the camera crew leave and then I went back and I lowered myself into that that horrible space and felt I could do it. And so that's when I announced to the team I was going to make a go at this. Yeah, and I did. And and survived going down. It was awful. Had to make some really strange decisions on the way down about, you know, pushing beyond a point where I might not be able to get out. Learned a lot even in that passage. It's not a chute. It's not a chimney. It's a labyrinth. Um, and and Naledi had a lot of options of coming in. None easy, uh, but a lot of different options on how to move into that space. Um, and then when I got in, uh, you know, I decided I wasn't going to take photographs. I've watched that thing through a video screen for eight years, eight and a half years at that time. And um, and I was glad I didn't because as I narrated my my sort of journey through there, it made me see it. Mm -hmm. And that's when the discovery of the engravings occurred. Uh, and and it was a profound moment for me. I mean, I had a a optical hallucination when I saw them. Uh, and I can explain exactly why that happened, but you know, those scenes in like Queen's Gambit or sure. uh, in A Beautiful Mind where you see the numbers up and, and float and it happened to me. And it happened because I switched light sources. Um, I switched from an, a, a normal headlamp, a natural light to a, a UV light. And in that sudden thing, I, I created an optical shift and caused these things to float out, which was a little disturbing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and um if you ever listen to the whole narration of it, I describe this in my new book coming up, which is also Cave of Bones, comes out this month. Um, but uh, it was an amazing thing to see these engravings that are carved over. And I know some people go, oh, well, isn't this rock called elephant skin and couldn't those be natural? All you have to do is look at those images. They're not natural. They cross sure. over stromatolites in there. They've been carved deeply into this very hard rock multiple times. Some of them are geometric shapes. What has been most remarkable about that um, is that they are almost identical to the shapes that we see at Gibraltar that are attributed to Neanderthals around 30 to 60,000 years ago and to the earliest modern human uh, geometric shapes we see at places like Blombos. Um, 
is that a surprise? I don't know. Um, it, it, but I think it does likely mean that 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 these shapes are something to do with an inherited mind. Mm, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they have to do with language. Maybe they have to do with math. Maybe their way we process thought. But I think this clearly demonstrates a shared between three very different and pretty much unrelated species, at least at the time they're created. Mm-hmm. And we, I, I think we should be clear, too, as far as we have discovered in the Dinaletti chamber where we're seeing these shapes, there are no other species that have been discovered, no right. other hominid species. So and immediately one of the criticisms is that, how do you know Homo sapiens didn't do this? And let me say that Firstly, there's a part of me that wants to deride that even suggestion as human exceptionalism. We always have to make ourselves center of everything. Um, There's no evidence of humans in there. Mm -hmm. We know every human being that's been in there. And we name them in the back of those papers. (laughs) Any life, you know, we understood that immediately. These things are made over time. Mm-hmm. They're not just one image. They're layers of images. They're actually erasing older images. These are done into a rock that's 4.7 on the Mohs hardness scale. So this is not something that's done idly and it's done quickly. Some of them appear to have a substance applied to them mm-hmm. uh, that looks like an ochre or some type of clay that is coloring them. Um, and there's no evidence of humans in that space other than us. Mm-hmm. And humans, particularly Homo sapiens and pre, you know, sort of historic humans leave evidence when they enter spaces like this, but they don't enter spaces like this, by the way. That's not a, a in sub-Saharan Africa, in fact, almost anywhere in the world, humans don't go into these extreme spaces. Second thing is, these are right over the top of Homo naledi graves. Mm-hmm. Lots of them. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we're using the idea of the inference of the situation to hypothesize they did it. And I think that's the best hypothesis right now. Will uh, there have also been people who said, well, you have to have a date? That's a little disingenuous given that 99.99% of all rock engravings in history have never been dated. They've sure. just been inferred sure. by their presence to how old they are. However, we are making those attempts. We're assembling one of the finest and largest teams to study this. There will be no groove left unstudied that we will not apply to this to establish whether um, you know we can associate these. But right now, the scientific hypothesis is these are associated and made by Homo naledi. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about not, you know, we're not going to say definites. We're not going to. We're not going to make big claims unless you want to make a big, big claim and break it on this podcast. I'll let you do it. But what are the potential new understandings of Homo naledi based on this symbolic evidence that we have? I think we have to face the fact that naledi was utilizing the entire subterranean space is in a way that humans don't and in a cultural manner. Mm-hmm. And that we are seeing in a small brain hominid, a complex culture that approaches the level that humans have. Mm-hmm. Hun- at least a hundred thousand or more years before 
any human, there's any evidence that humans behave in that level of cultural complexity. I, I think that's a given. And uh, I know of discoveries that have been made. I literally saw one three hours ago that is uh, dealing with fire. And people have been arguing for the evidence of the age of fire and association with Homo Lydia. I can tell you, we got it. Um, and that those processes are are going to unfold over, over the next while. But I think that, let me take also an ironic step back. Why is it that we have approached the study of human origins from the null hypothesis that you have to prove that it's that things are not natural in origin, rather than appro- uh, approaching them from the, the null hypothesis that anything related to a hominin should be cultural until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is I believe the latter is testable and the former may not be. And it, it does surprise me when we, we are in a situation where chimp- we've now demonstrated, and maybe it's because this is all relatively new, but we've now demonstrated chimpanzees are cultural. We've demonstrated gorillas are cultural. We've demonstrated um, cetaceans are cultural. We've demonstrated mm-hmm. some corvids are cultural and on and on and on. And yet we treat these animals, our human relatives, um, who are much closer to us than those examples I just gave you, all of them, including chimps and gorillas, um, as if they are acultural animals, Mm -hmm. like they're antelopes, and that the null hypothesis should be you find one, it died naturally. Well, I, I actually think we've done a lot of harm doing that. Certainly, our teams are going to be shifting that and approaching these situations from the cultural perspective first so we don't miss evidence. Because if you dig these up the way we dig a dinosaur up, you're going to lose evidence. Yeah. Let's. So I think maybe the other thing we have to talk about when we're talking about this cultural evidence, how much does the environment in which you are finding these Naledi remains graves allow you to find this evidence you know this is in a in a very deep cave whereas if you're looking at outdoor sites where you're getting a lot of weather erosion time you know kind of playing a factor how much how much do you think the location has allowed you to now make these discoveries um i'm going to answer that in several ways one is that no one's ever looked in these locations Mm -hmm. before and that includes us so I think part of the next phase of exploration has to be looking in these deep spaces, in these inaccessible spaces for for and at evidence. Um, I can tell you the fire that we've now discovered was right in front of us the whole time. Sure. We had just convinced ourselves it was going to be hard to see. <laughs> it was everywhere. <laughs> you know, and and I that, you know, we're human too. When you know yeah. it comes scientists are human too, when it comes to that sort of thing. Moving so location obviously like this because of the its depth, its protection from the environment, its protection from scavengers and carnivores and other things getting at it is obviously a more stable environment. And so it's giving us, you know, I think everyone knows that we are succeeding with molecular evidence and other things like that that will be coming in the future. But so we're getting levels of preservation you might not get in an external environment. Having said that, I think we have to go back and look at particularly in the Southern African context, uh, a lot of the cave sites. I mean, there are interesting questions like, 
why is there almost no carnivore damage on hominids from most of these cave sites? Yet all the fauna, our significant portion of the fauna, animals that are with them have carnivore damage. You've just seen this wonderful work like Brianna Pope by Brianna Pobinner out of uh, East Africa showing that you know they're finding cut marks on a mm. on on an ancient hominid tibia. And I think that brings up the question how much of how much have we been overlooking cultural evidence that was right in front of us because we knew it wasn't going to be there? I mean, if you think about it, what if uh a lot of the famous discoveries that we've been dealing with in East Africa were burials. Yeah, sure. And and that's not as ridiculous as it sounds. It was proposed for the 333 family. It was just seen as ridiculous because a small brain hominid couldn't do that. So we looked for every other cause. People proposed lightning strikes and that. But again, you see how that quickly moves into the never-ending story, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to saying, okay, they're burials. Now prove they're not. That's actually, I believe, testable as opposed to, well, let's just invent the next natural process that we can't observe to, to, to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, what if some of the early modern humans, what if those are burials and we dug them as if they were paleontological digs? They may not be the age we say they are, because if they're dug into the sediments, then they're not the age of the sediment they're in. Right. Right. And so I think, and I say this not critically that I think that's incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. I think it opens up lines of study and research that 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 offer us just tremendous, tremendous potential for uh, new ways of doing science and new ways of asking questions. You know, it sounds like you're talking about the need and the opportunity for a perspective shift when we're thinking about these fossil hominids and also our, our, uh, you know, our own human graves that we're finding uh, throughout. And, you know, if we're thinking about a shift in perspective, I, I can't help but go back to you, like finally getting down into the Dina Letty chamber where you, as much as you could as a living homo sapien, put yourself into kind of the the experience of homo naledi you know were you thinking about how they were potentially bringing uh, a dead family member down into that chamber you know putting yourself into that mindset of the difficulty that they were going through to do this thing and maybe talk about that experience of how do you how did that action kind of changed the way you're now looking at all of this evidence. No, it it absolutely did. I mean, firstly, I spent a lot more time in that shoot labyrinth than I wanted to. (laughs) 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 Had a lot of time to look around in there. Um, And you, you know, I did have those moments. I'm a very visual person. It's how I make discoveries. I tend to visualize a moment and then and then and then look for that moment. I've often, and anyone who's heard me recount the discovery of Sadiba or any of the others, that's often how that those discoveries have occurred. Um, I could I could see them in those spaces. You could see how they would move through those spaces in a very different way than a mm-hmm. human does. Um, because they are slighter than we are, they are more powerful than we are, they have smaller heads than we are. And those are really all critical factors when moving through small vertical and tight lateral spaces like that 
So I could see that. And when I got into the chamber, one of the things that was profoundly um, uh, profoundly uh, of interest to me is almost instantly was you could see they manipulated the chamber. Mm-hmm. I looked down on the floor. I could see that they had damaged flowstones, moving them uphill. We now know to get underneath them to the softer dirt where they could bury their dead. Um, sure. They had moved rocks around that weren't moved by us, you know, and they had stacked them in places and moved them. They were interacting with that space and it allowed me to, you know, see them in a different way. And part of that's physically being there. And while I can tell you that augmented virtual reality and our ability to get, be in places is, is profoundly important and changing our fields, there is something about the human experience about being in a space mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that, because all your senses engage. You know, you're, um, and anyone who's ever worked in a cave environment understands that, you know, you, certain things deteriorate in that environment and other senses are heightened in those environments. Sound, interestingly, is, is very difficult in a cave uh, because, because it has very little value to your survival. Um, whereas sight is critically important. Smell, less so. Touch, massively so. And so, you know, all these things heighten uh, in in that environment, allow you to see things in a way that that you know technology just doesn't doesn't do it. So I'm glad I I, I won't be going again. <laughs> I'll tell you that. But uh, I'm glad I did it. You know, what you're just t- saying, you know, watching the documentary Unknown Cave of Bones, which you should all watch on <laughs> Netflix as soon as this uh, interview is over. I like the progression of your thought process through that through that filming because at the beginning you're talking about you know we were able to see things on the cameras because we were positioned in a way that they weren't able to see them if you're like right over the dig site because it's pretty cramped quarters you're working very close to where you're digging and actually being able to go in there you're like i wasn't seeing anything i was (laughs) i was seeing so little and i thought i had this bird's eye view uh, and it's really interesting to, you don't know what you don't know until you're in that space. Um, and I think now I want to actually talk about this documentary because it is incredible. <laughs> I love the team that you put together to create this documentary because you're all excellent science communicators. Uh, you know, yourself, kind of kind of the premier science communicator, at least as far as we've had on this podcast. Uh, but there's also John Hawks and um and Augustine and, and Canelli Pane and and yes. all the others. Unique all, all, all of them. All of which for now and for the end of time have standing invitations to come on this podcast whenever they want to. You just You should invite them. I <laughs> I come. am inviting them right now, but also we'll send them invitations. Um and it's just such a compelling uh work, you know. It's it's a popular science documentary for the the mass market, but is also really laying out the evidence in a way that you would for a scientific journal. You know, you are you are showing this evidence. You're making the hypothesis, and then you are showing the evidence, and you're saying like, based on what we're looking at, it's hard to kind of think anywhere any any other way. How how much do you see this as a companion for the people who may 
have other opinions based on just the data that you're putting out. And I think you make a really important point. And funny enough, I was talking with John Hawks just today about that very thing of the different reaction once people see the 4K video of those things. And suddenly they go, oh, I see the yeah, oval right. shape. And, you know, those aren't in the papers, but maybe they should be. Um, and maybe all of the, you know, I am a student not only of deep history, but of our own scientific history. And I understand very deeply that you know, our science hasn't been the way it's been for as long as people think it is, you know, mm -hmm. this peer review process and that. And peer review is never intended to put a stamp that this is truth. That's not what it's about. What it, it it's typically been about two things. One, does it conform to a standard of methodology of presentation? And does it conform to the status quo the way we believe things are right now? Sure. <laughs> and if it violates either of those, you're in for a rough ride. Um I, I hope people do look at that documentary. That documentary, although it's obviously edited and, you know, it's not exactly as – none of it was acted. Uh -huh. None of it. They followed us for a year. Uh -huh. And what you're watching is a generalized progression of how we started to look at burials. And then we had multiple burials. Then we realized that – We'd always had burials, and because we'd gone with the natural, the null hypothesis of natural formation, we'd missed that. And then we found this tool-shaped rock nestled into the hand, and you saw how that plays out. And you know, it's and you see how other scientists are responding to that. I'll tell you this: a very funny thing. We did a three D print of that, and I handed it out to a half a dozen Middle Stone Age archaeologists, every one of them, when they looked at it, went, oh, yeah, this is a Middle Stone Age tool. It's been used for wood carving or this. And I go, and it was found in the hand of a homo naledi child in a grave. Oh, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, <laughs> you were actually <laughs> testing the Semmelweis <laughs> reflex uh, in real time. <laughs> and then, you know, and then we get it, you know, fire happens at Miracle or Canelway. It's finding fire. What the documentary doesn't show is at the same that event where Kanoway and her team find fire. I found fire inside the Dinaletti chamber at the same time. It happened simultaneously. So the documentary doesn't really show that timeline. Then the symbols, then our interpretation of them as they go. What I enjoyed about it, though, and by the way, if you do read the book Cave of Bones, which I hope you order. It goes into the real depth and the science and our discussions and why we made decisions. You really get the real backstory to that as it as it as it actually happened and and with insight into where it's going next. But but what I also enjoyed about it was it allowed us to actually do what a lot of people think is unscientific. Talk about culture, love these ideas that they were individuals in the past. They had families. And that they were real and they had must have had real emotions and real things that we sometimes in our attempt to look like scientists, we turn what is 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 a beautiful thing. The this study of the we take the anthropology out of paleo. Mm. And I think that we yeah. should bring a little bit of that back. You know. I don't think we're going to be able to pay for a better ending than that one. So I just want to give you the opportunity to tell 
everyone where they can find all the things that you're working on and keep up with you and your team. So do follow me on social media. I'm at Lear Berger on uh, Twitter, Prof Lee Berger on Facebook, but please do my official page because my other <laughs> one's full. Um, I, the Netflix show is called Unknown Cave of Bones on Netflix. I don't know how long it'll be airing, but it's available for streaming as of immediately. And then we have a book uh, with National Geographic Press and Penguin Random House around the world uh, called Cave of Bones, which I really encourage you to read. It's written by me and John Hawks. Excellent. We will link to where you can find that, where you can pre-order it, where you can follow Professor Berger on our website, Professor Berger. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And great to be back here. made it to the end of another edition of the science bite podcast but don't worry we got all kinds of stuff coming your way so be sure to follow us on social media if you want to follow me i'm at james underscore read three you can find steffi on twitter at steffi deem and on instagram at star shipping and you can follow jason at organ jm Follow the podcast on Twitter at SciNightPod and visit our home on the web, SciNight.com, for links to all our other social medias, some past episodes, the people we talk to, the stories we talk about, and of course, our merch. There is so much to see, and you can see it all at SciNight.com. We'll be back soon with some more Summer SciCom, but until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Hello, Science Night listeners. My name is Mark, and I host the Podfulness Podcast. Podfulness is where you go when you want to find new podcasts to add into your rotation. Each week, I bring on a guest who talks about their favorite show and why they love it. Plus, we end each episode with some fun and games. Episodes are half as long as most other podcasts, but twice as joyful. If you're looking for podcast recommendations from podcast superfans, give us a listen. Just search for Podfulness on your favorite streaming platform. Podfulness. Podfulness.